Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. My guests today are Elizabeth Scarborough-Johnson and Jason Simon from Simpson Scarborough. The names should be familiar. They're one of the most well-respected partners in higher ed. Their branding and messaging work comes out of an enthusiastic curiosity and data-driven creative. They work with schools ranging from small private institutions to large public flagships. Welcome to both of you, and thanks for making the time to chat. My pleasure. Thanks, Will. Well, I'm going to start off with two questions that I like to ask everybody. First up, what's something that you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn from it? I have so many things I can mention, <laughs> but I wasn't sure, Will, if you were if you were interested in answers related specifically to the work that we do or or really personal traits. And I think I, I have a longer list in the personal category. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although there's lots of things I've tried in business that haven't worked, but but personally, I think is the, is the more interesting one. My career's almost 30 years in the business now, and it took me a long time to stop trying to be good at things that I'm inherently bad at. But I've learned that in the last few years or so to Instead of trying to right my wrongs, find other people who can compliment me. Um, and Jason's one of those, so I, I can I can pass it to him and let him answer. But you know, Jason is a is an incredible manager of people, and I'm just not. So I, I I'm just so thankful to have him as my partner because we're really we have a great yin and yang. He's just really good at managing people and being a great leader. You know, sort of like like strengths finder. Play to your strengths and find people who who you know sort of compensate for your weaknesses. Likewise, I mean, I feel like I have a, a huge list, and I was thinking professionally. I think in general, like I'm really in favor of the idea of creating a safe space where it's actually okay for things not to work. That it's it's not a a negative. One of the things that's really challenging for people working in higher education is that the stakes always seem so high when they really aren't. Um, I was really fortunate uh, to, to work with somebody uh, at one point earlier in my career who was um, my boss that came from a crisis background and and truly a, a crisis background where she was in charge of communications for the New York Fire Department during September 11th. And she always reminded me, you know, that when a crisis really was the first question you ask is how many people have died. And so anything underneath that is not much of a crisis. And that was really important perspective to have. And I think, um, you know, we tend to put too much emphasis on word choice or what picture is being used on this website or those kinds of things, which, which really are, are not failures in, in any way. But I think if I had to talk about one that was um, a, a professional one, I would say that uh, and anyone that's seen me speak previously knows about my University of California logo experience um, that I had when I when I worked there, and you know it was for for all um, counts would would be considered uh, a fail in that column, even though you know we did a lot of things right. And for me personally, it was a really big win. I learned a lot from it. You know, I think we've taken those those learnings and those experiences into into other things that we do, and so. I think that's just a really tough, a, t a tough word, you know, uh, a failure or something that didn't work. I mean, I think there's opportunity in, in anything like that. This idea of failing forward, mm -hmm. you, know, you fail, but you at least learn from it and you do something better to you know, make that attempt and at least fail than to mm -hmm. sit back and do the same thing all the time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a, I mean, I think that's so important. And especially in higher ed, I think that the really good leaders and the really good managers essentially create those places, those like sandbox opportunities for people to try new things. Otherwise, this industry has a tendency to to want to be a, a lot of followers. You know, if you're not trying new things, then inevitably you're not going to be hitting any big home runs or, or really changing things um, at your institution. And Jason, I don't want to dive down too much of a rabbit hole on this, but this is an industry where people always want the best practice. They want to know what works somewhere else so I can do the same thing here. Mm-hmm. How do you create that culture of it's okay to try something outside of the box and if it fails, learn? Wow, that's a that's a good question. You know, I think part of it is really trying to understand the problem, trying to get towards what is the issue that we're trying to solve and really setting that objective and how it's going to be measured and you know, having really strategic conversations like that allow for the chance to really break free and do something different. You know, if you can really, really define what it is that you're trying to change and why you're trying to change it, then you can begin to get everybody sort of on the same page in thinking about ways in which, you know, that change can can happen and occur. And, and along with that comes kind of new ideas and, and new thinking. We see that all the time in sort of the outcomes from our research work. One of the biggest benefits there is not just the insight, but it is truly the notion of people truly understanding what the issue is and getting alignment on really thinking about how to think outside of, you know, whatever the norm is and and try something different. How do you reconcile these projects or these ideas that you consider to be a failure, but other people celebrate it as, as a win still? Gosh, you know what? I'm not sure if mine was sort of a, a program. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is giving keynote addresses. Jason knows this story. I was asked a couple of years to give a keynote to about a thousand people. And I was really excited. I thought, oh, this is going to be so much fun. You know, I've made countless presentations at conferences and symposium over the years. I mean, literally hundreds of sessions, but I'd never actually keynoted, which is very different, right? That's you're on a stage alone. You've got a podium, you have two humongous screens and you have just a sea of people, right? You see a thousand people, but you don't see one. And I gave the talk and it was celebrated, right? The group was very happy. They were so thankful. We want to invite you back. This was the best session of the whole conference. You know, I got great feedback on it, but I walked away so deflated. I absolutely hated it because I realized that when I'm presenting, I need an audience that can talk back to me. For it to be satisfying for me, it has to be a two-way conversation. It can't just be a one-way conversation. So it was interesting because I, you know, the, the, the group that I was giving the talk to was so thankful and complimentary. And I got tons of emails afterwards saying how much it helped people. And But I walked away feeling completely empty. I, you know, I was glad they got something out of it, but I didn't get out of it what I wanted, which was, you know, interaction. And so, you know, now I try to keep my talks to you know, maybe a couple hundred people at max, because even with a couple hundred people, you can get down off the stage and walk through the crowd and start answering individual questions and really having a dialogue. You can see people's heads, you know, shaking up and down or side to side, or if they're confused or, you know, if they have something to say or uh, they agree or disagree with you. And, and without that two-way interaction, I just don't get as, as much out of it. So I, I realize that I don't want to keynote anymore, right? I want to do smaller sessions where, you know, it, it's as gratifying for me, I think, as it is with the group. It's so interesting to hear Elizabeth's comments. It, it really makes and reminds me of the importance of, you know, finding those people that that you work effectively off of and, and that you're complementary of each other's strengths. You know, so even just in that example that Elizabeth just gave, 
you know, she and I, she and I joked because she likes that small room and I like the big room mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for different reasons. Just like Elizabeth was, was saying before, I mean, the weaknesses and knowing what you do well and what you don't do well. I mean, I feel like I have learned a lot from Elizabeth over the years, too, on what to spend time on and how to how to focus time. We kind of always have joked that Elizabeth's you know nickname is the Energizer Bunny because she not only just has so much energy and brings so much enthusiasm all the time, but, but constantly is moving between one thing and, and another thing. And, um, you know, that speed of being able to bounce quickly is um, is a skill that that I've picked up from her, and and at the same time, you know, I pull her back from at times too in ways that I that I think you know we both um, mm-hmm. appreciate and, and learn from. I think it's so important to just have those people around you, both personally and professionally, that are different but complementary, and that that's been such an important part of you know any level of not even success but more just enjoyment out of personal and professional relationships yeah that's something i've learned over my career too i mean really learning to recognize when you have found someone in business that you are perfectly aligned with it doesn't mean you have to think the same way or behave the same way or even have the same type of personality or even the same you know ideas but when you find someone that you fit with like a lock and a key, it, you know, that, that it's really important to lean into those relationships in your career because they are very rare. And I'm, I, I constantly have my antenna up for people like that. Another person like that for me is Tony Proudfoot. He's the VP of, of marketing and communications at Western Michigan university. And I've known him since the early nineties when he was back at Indiana university. And I was three companies ago, we've just been friends forever. And he's, uh, I just understand him and get along with him. And I learn from him and he learns from me, you know, those are the kinds of relationships in business that you have to learn to really record and in your personal life, I guess. Right. But, but in business, you know, I just, I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for people like that and I hang on to them tight. You know, the only other thing that I would say that is just a bit of advice or, or something I observed, I think at, at one point in a, in a meeting, uh, a pretty important meeting. And, and I remember just the light bulb kind of going off. It's one of those things that you don't get until you're a little bit later in your career is the power and the comfort and being willing to say that you don't know. And so whether you're standing in front of, you know, a room of a thousand people or 200 people, or even just being in a meeting and being able to, to say, I don't know, let us find out and get back to you and not always having an answer or a solution. You, you know, as you get older, you start to learn those are not fails or those are not necessarily things that didn't work. Those are just real moments of, of human interaction and that we all don't have the answer to everything. Yeah, that's something that a lot of new admission staff is told, you know, it's okay to say, I don't know, but I feel like after a few years, people start to feel like that's not okay anymore. And you unlearn that. Definitely. So what are some of the practices used to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? For me, it's being a connector. And I kind of just mentioned this. It's it's classic Malcolm Gladwell, right? I mean, if I find somebody who's doing something that I think is interesting, if I read an article by them, if I hear a presentation, I'll attack them, even if I've never met them. It's it's hilarious. I, mean, I, can't, I can't even count how many random people that I don't know that I've asked if I can just get them on the phone for 30 minutes to pick their brain. And it's really interesting because, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about higher ed 
Fred, uh, is that people are so willing to do that and give you their time. Just just recently, I've been, been working with a lot of institutions on their organizational structure in the marketing and communications division. And anybody I can find who's doing something interesting, who's moving toward more integration and, and more of a center-led model, if they're doing it in higher education, I've talked to them in the last year because I just call them up or email them and say, you know, can I talk to you? So that's how I get new ideas is just by reaching out to people. And thank goodness, higher ed is the kind of industry where people are so open to sharing everything that they're doing. And it's an important thing to recognize about our industry because you can capitalize on. I've built great relationships with, you know, new and innovative people in that way just by asking them for their time. And it's it's wonderful. I love that about higher ed. They, they give it freely and willingly. Yeah, similarly, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that's really challenging is just this notion of being able to brainstorm or be creative on demand. You put people into a room and you say, let's brainstorm this thing. There's a level of preparation that has to happen before that moment happens. And it's hard to control for how long that's going to take and when the ideas come. And so for me personally, I try to do a bunch of things that just sort of give me space, you know, and that could be exercising or going for a walk with the dog or, you know, listening to podcasts while I'm cooking. And you just never know when an idea is going to pop in your head and it connects back to the other thing that you're you're working on that you're trying to form an idea around. It's easier for me when there isn't that pressure, right? Um, to just sit down and produce and produce and produce. I know even for our creative team, you know, and, and in managing creative folks over the years, this notion of just like kind of being creative on demand is just an impossibility. And that's come hard for some people, you know, just in terms of like management, you know, just the idea of like, you know, why do the creatives get to come in at 10 or why, you know, when the reality is because, you know, the, the ideas might be coming at 10 at night instead of at, uh, at 10 in the morning or at eight in the morning or whenever that, that is. And I don't think that's just a creative thing. I think that's a, that's a human thing, right? You know, if, if you give your, yourself that chance to be creative and um, it, it's going to come for me personally, like one of the things that is a personal strength, going back to this strength finder, the ability to be able to like synthesize and, and then make decisions. So like Elizabeth, I, I like to listen and then I'm good at kind of connecting dots and, um, and then making a decision on what we might do or not do. And that's how my creativity kind of comes together. How do we talk about this sense of community when there is no physical place to tie it to? So is this something that institutions need to think about short-term identities right now? You know, people in who work in branding don't use the phrase short-term very often, right? Because branding is sort of a, a, a long-term game. It's a long-term play. It's always about the long-term. Attending to your brand is more acute right now than ever because all of our situations are, are so different without, you know, potentially most of our students not being on campus. Brand is about culture and personality. And culture and personality develop and are fostered and come through whether you're in the same room or not. It's something that they need to attend to much more intentionally now than they ever have. And they need to lean into what they've always been and what they've always been doing. They don't need to change, right? I mean, I think, you know, sometimes we think, well, our situation is all different. We need a whole new strategy. I think that's actually the opposite when it comes to branding. Everything has changed, so we need to lean into who we've always been. You know, but that has to be intentional. I mean, if you think about the way that students are connecting with faculty and the type of experience that they're having, I mean, we need to, you know, really think differently about what that looks like, what it feels like, you know? I mean, it's all new, and yet it's all the same, <laughs> you know, all at the same time, um, which I'm not even sure if that makes sense. I would caution institutions from 
trying to be something different than they are. Like I said, brands are about the long term. They're about authenticity. And so I think in these really, really challenging and unique times, institutions just really need to be honest, lean into what they've always been, embrace that, celebrate it, find new ways to bring it to life, you know, in a remote learning environment and keep their eye on the long term, not the short term. Brands are simultaneously built for the long haul and constantly evolving. You know, we're in such a unique period of time right now that it would be crazy to, you know, just kind of put your head in the sand and and assume that you can keep going the same course without some level of of rethinking who you are. At the same time, it's got to be based in that reality or in that strategy from before. You, You can't completely be something that you weren't. At the same time, you really have to think about what you're saying about your your institution, uh, about your brand, and the reality that you're facing right now. I mean, we have one client that is a large global institution with campuses in major metros around the world. What does it mean for them when they say that their brand is in and of the city at a time that there isn't traveling in connection between those major metropolitan areas? That doesn't mean that's not who they are. Branding now has really become sort of in the same way that we think about content and content not just being created for one place or one specific medium, but content being liquid. We need to think about brands the same way, you know, the, the sort of notion that they're shifting and moving and, you know, they have different purposes and they have different times and, and flavors and feel because of the environment that they're operating if someone's looking at their identity and, and their branding work and they're saying, boy, this just doesn't hit the same way since we're all remote, maybe it's a bigger issue then. Mm-hmm. Maybe the branding was never right yeah. if it relied so heavily on everyone being together on campus. Right, right. Well, and probably what the bigger problem was is that the brand wasn't focused enough. You know, brands need to be simple and focused and narrowly defined. And part of the problem in higher education is we say too much right? All colleges say way too much about what makes they think makes them special. And because they say way too much, they all sound the same. You know, that's what we're constantly encouraging our clients to focus on, narrowing, chiseling down, you know, what is it that we can really say? Hold ourselves to a standard where our brand platform really only feels like it's us and only us. Whatever it is we're touting in our platform, you know, really couldn't be said by competitor A down the street or competitor B in the next town. So in these times, if an institution is feeling like their brand isn't well-defined, isn't well-differentiated, what they need to do in, in all likelihood is chisel it down, focus it on those things that will hold us, you know, hold ourselves to the standard where we can say, gosh, this really feels like us and only us, right? It doesn't feel like any other school. This is really key and something I think not just in higher ed, but something that a lot of brands get wrong. They try to appeal to everybody, appeal to the masses, rather than say, here's who we are. This is our narrow band that sets us apart. And that's something that I think everyone should sit down and take a look and figure out, does our brand actually say this? That's the really hard part is getting that focus in your brand platform and resisting the temptation to say, oh, yeah, and we're also that. Oh, yeah, you know, we're we have all these great academic programs. We have incredible experiential learning opportunities. We've got great athletics, great study abroad. You can come here. You're going to get a great job with this degree. I mean, you know, all of those things just, you know, the more you pile on, the more you sound like every other school, like I said. And so I would encourage institutions that are struggling with their identity to try to focus. The more you focus, the more you chisel the more distinctive your brand platform will become. When you see the brand reflected in the marketing, it's rare to see 
view books or ad campaigns that aren't just pictures of campus? You know, how should they be stepping back and auditing that positioning? Mm -hmm. Well, and at the same time, we all hope it is coming back, right? But next fall is going to be quote unquote normal, we hope, right? We're recruiting a class now, the fall 2021 class that we think will be back in person, but we're recruiting them entirely remotely. So we've got that we've got to juggle. I mean, you know, there's just no doubt that there's just a whole bunch of challenges. But honestly, I really think that this period in time has already shown that it's going to stretch institutions to do better. If you think about March, when all of the colleges within a two-week period went 100% remote, if, if for anyone who's worked in higher ed for even just a year, you know how dramatic and amazing that was, right? I mean, higher ed showed an agility in March 2020 that I never knew <laughs> it had. You know, everybody who works in higher ed knows that, you know, we, we turn like the Titanic right? I mean, we are so slow to move and we research everything and we discuss everything and we vet everything and engage everyone and their mother and their sister and their dog in every decision that we, we make. But when COVID hit, we went remote in two weeks, every single campus in the country, which was a phenomenal feat. I really, really hope that as we go through you know, the next six months or even the next year, that we can retain some of that. I hope some of that agility sticks because there's no doubt that we have to adapt. Put COVID aside. I mean, think about what we were worried about six months ago. Everyone was talking about the demographic cliff coming in 2025. No one's even talking about that anymore, but it's still coming, right? And so, you know, we we need to retain some of, you know, every organization does. Higher ed's not the only industry. I mean, there's, every industry has, you know, exhibited an agility that probably never knew that they had. And if we can retain some of that, I think it's going to improve what we're doing in higher education. Elizabeth mentioned before, I mean, just this notion of in, in higher ed, especially brand equals culture. You know, I think if you have a really, really well-defined culture, an expression of that culture in your branding that even now without a physical experience, you've got an opportunity to be able to demonstrate how that comes through. And I think one of the most immediately sort of evident examples of that is, is UCLA. I mean, they had a terrific brand strategy built all around sort of the notion of optimism and, you know, looking at things in the, in the sunny LA kind of way, you know, so how are they bringing optimism to the current situation, right? And how is their culture now online ultimately, you know, going to still reflect that, that level of optimism, you know, this, the notion of sort of like trying to uh, step back and be something now that you weren't pre pandemic, I think is, is challenging where schools have an opportunity right now is to really confirm and affirm their their reputations by what they're doing and, and the choices that they're making, whether that's the decisions they're making around reopening or ultimately some of the ways that they're supporting their community, whether those are students or their employees in a remote manner. I mean, now's a really, really great time for institutions to be thinking about centralized services and, you know, better support and ways that they can be responsive. And to Elizabeth's point, all of these things that we've known we should be doing for so long that now, you know, institutions, whether we're talking about for budget related reasons or just because they have to manage this crisis, all of a sudden, you know, all of these things are going to be done in different kinds of ways and with different speed and decision-making is, is happening much, much faster. And those are things that ultimately may, may stick and, and make these institutions better. So Jason, when they're talking about culture, culture is an abstract. So how can people on the admissions side, 
how do they get better at recognizing and talking about the culture? Yeah, I actually don't think culture is an abstract. I think culture, just like brands, can be really, really well defined. And then it's just a matter of being very disciplined in picking the examples that you're choosing or the ways in which you're acting and being responsive. Using the, the UCLA or the optimism example, what are the ways in which that, that institution is is really being proactive and putting a, you know, a sunny side on what kinds of things are getting done right now in the face of, of everything that's happening around us. I, you know, the choices on the storytelling that we're doing or the way that we're choosing to, to implement different programs or, or whatever, I mean, can be very, very intentional. And the, the great thing that we always say about brands and brand strategy in particular is it should fit right up there with your mission, your vision, your strategic plan, and then your brand position. You know, and if you're making decisions for the institution based on what you're saying the brand stands for, then ultimately those things should line up really, really nicely and they shouldn't be abstract. There's a lot of talk about we are this and they show it with the physical attributes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if you think about kind of traditional brands and the brands that we celebrate the most, I mean, you don't have to look any further than than sort of Apple and the way that they've evolved their branding over times where it was very, very product focused, right? Like literally, you know, Steve Jobs was adamant about, you know, you need to show the product, whether that was an iPhone or an iPod or, or the MacBook, you know, you need to show it. it needs to be the hero front center and show what it does and show how the screen moves to now all of their branding and advertising is really about the feel and the culture that has been created around creativity, which is Ultimately, you know, going back to kind of the mission statement of, of Apple was all about, you know, creating a creative community. It comes back to that core strategy and then how you make decisions based on that. And so if your brand really is all about outcomes, your storytelling is going to be directly about that. And some of the product choices that you may choose to do, like supporting students right now that can't co-op, you're supporting them with other kinds of you know, direct professional experience, that's a reflection of the brand and who you are. It's just a different way than higher education is, is typically used to, to telling that story, right? It uses a different type of thing. Authenticity is extremely important. The brand needs to reflect that institution and not just something aspirational. So how can someone step back and evaluate their authenticity? Are we sharing who we are are we sharing who we want to be? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Because they, they need to be authentic, but they also need to reflect the direction that the institution is going. And so so I'll, I'll often tell people that, that the brand platform should sort of have one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. And then people ask me where the line is, and I say, I have no idea. It's different for every school, right? Because, because that's, you know, a little bit blurry. But, you know, it, what's interesting about what's been going on is that there's nothing like a crisis, to reveal what you really stand for. I mean, it's really in a crisis when all of your strengths and your warts and your you know, problems and your values are just laid bare and exposed. So I think it's an interesting time for people to reflect on what their institutional culture really is and what they really stand for. And exercise looking back at what's happened over the last six months since coronavirus hit is really a great time to do that. You know, when you're tested, when you're down, when you've been kicked, you know, when you've had layoffs, when you've had to cut programs, when you've had to cut your budget and make all of those really tough choices, it it forces your priorities to get in line. And with all of the tough choices that every organization is having to make, whether it's our company or a college or university that we're working with, 
that whole process of being tested in such difficult and challenging ways, it really reveals what your brand is all about. Looking at that, I think the marketer's job is to step outside of the bubble um, and try to look inside and sort of articulate what they're seeing. Because there's no hiding your brand in the midst of a crisis, right? The good, bad, or the ugly. <laughs> that is what positioning is all about, taking where you are and where you want to be. It's a really, really opportune time to be thinking about it. It's also a really, really challenging time to be doing that because I just, there's so many large choices that are being presented to institutions right now. You know, the financial pressures are, are really real and, and people tend to kind of want to grasp on to, to quick wins and things that would be easy fixes in, in times like this and, and the challenges that there are no easy fixes. And instead, what the best schools are doing is taking a moment to actually reflect on some changes that they couldn't make for a variety of reasons. And, and now given all of this, it just seems completely illogical not to make those choices. Maybe that makes the industry stronger and in the long run, I, I think the only fear then will be, you know, in the near term, schools making bad decisions or trying to be something that they, that they aren't. I think one of the things that's really exciting, Will, is there have been so many things in higher education, especially from an enrollment and marketing side, that have been considered to be the standard way of doing things. You know, like you said before, the best practiced, mm -hmm. but those things are all getting shaken up now. You know, the investments that were traditionally made in search or, you know, going and having physical presence in college fairs and in-person visits to high schools and, you know, the amount of time and effort that was put into campus visits and all of those things that, you know, now that people are going to be reinvesting, if we start to get positive outcomes because of the current situation, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're just going to all return back to where we were before. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you're talking about huge, huge opportunities for places that are budget challenged. I mean, those investments have not been inconsequential. They've been major, major investments. And so just like schools that have, have really dug in on a digital marketing side and can and really start to think about, you know, what they're getting out of every single lead, you know, how much they're having to spend to, to ultimately yield a, an enrollment and where those sources are. I mean, you know, if I was a, a really smart marketer right now, I would be excited by the opportunities that are in front of me. You know, this is a chance to kind of rethink that whole funnel and rethink the way that we've traditionally done things and turn it on its head. Exactly. I mean, it, it really is exciting. I mean, if you just think about what's happening with three things that Jason mentioned, search, the traditional college search process with, you know, school mailing paper to, to high school kids and uh, visits to high schools and third visits to college fairs. I mean, those three things have been the anchors of the recruitment strategy for higher education for like 40 years. I mean, geez, it's like, you know, another one of the silver linings is that this pandemic is forcing us to do everything digitally and remotely. It's drop kicking us into the 21st century, you know, when it comes to digital marketing, because all of those old tools just literally aren't even available to us anymore. We should have been making that shift over the last, you know, starting 20 years ago, much more aggressively. And now we're being forced to. So I, I agree with Jason. I think it's a really exciting time. Now campuses have all these, this money that they used to spend, you know, printing view books and piling paper into mailboxes and sending 12 counselors on the road for 10 weeks in the fall to go visit high schools. They have all that money that they, all that investment that they used to make in that, and they've got to find a new way.
right? So it, it's, I'm not, you know, I wish it wasn't thrust on us in a hot second in the midst of a crisis. You know, that makes it chaotic to say the least. But I think we're going to come out of this a lot smarter. The way we recruit classes in the, in the future is just going to be much more sophisticated, much more aligned with how they want to receive. Maybe I'm, I should have been a UCLA grad, but I'm optimistic that we'll look back on this and say we were really forced to change in ways that we probably should have a long time ago. Yeah, and where will you get in from more students? You know, are you going to spend $200 to go to a college fair and have someone drive there and spend the night in a hotel? Or could you use that same amount of money on a digital campaign and actually get in front of that student when they're looking for colleges, when they're in their apps? Exactly, exactly. Niche is a great example of one of exactly those types of, you know, new and better solutions. There's lots of ways that you can explore it and take baby steps and try different things. But, you know, hopefully you'd been doing that for a few years because mm-hmm. now it all needs to change. And I've, I've been talking to people who have, have scoffed at the idea of going all digital and said that they're still having visitors on campus, which mm-hmm. if you can do it safely, okay, but still planning on sending counselors out on the road, still planning to go to college fairs. You know, if, if you don't yeah, have that backup, exactly. plan, this is going to be rough. Well, thank you both. This has been a great conversation. I know you have a lot to get back to, so I appreciate taking the time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's our pleasure, Will. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And if someone wants to reach out and connect with you or has a follow-up question about something here, is there a better way to get in touch with you? www.simpsonscarborough.com. Go sign up for our newsletter. We do lots of great research and we'd love to hear from everyone. All of our contact information is right there. A lot of great information up there as well. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will.